Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about stories containing people's first impressions of Jesus. Before it plays, I want to make you aware of something that is happening in our church right now. Like for many churches, COVID and everything connected to it was really hard. As I've mentioned before, due to not being allowed to use the school we normally meet in, we had to do church from eight locations in 13 months. On top of that, about a third of our congregation moved out of the state. Despite the challenges though, God has continued to move in our church. We are growing, people are getting baptized, and we're even finding new ways to serve our community. In fact, we're working this year with another organization to provide children who have been victims of human trafficking a good Christmas. Here's the reality. Despite the good taking place in our congregation, the challenges of the last year have made money really tight. Right now, we are doing a fundraiser to make up for the deficit that we plan for in our budget. Thankfully, someone has graciously offered to match the first $5,000 donated. That means for every dollar donated, $2 will come to our church. So here's my big ask. If you are in a position to make a donation, it would be incredibly helpful to our church and the future of our ministry. I know that not everyone can do this, and I really don't want you to feel guilty if you can't. But if you can make a donation, a donation of any size, we would appreciate it so much. If this is true for you, you can go to creekside.me donate. Make sure to select the matching fundraiser when you choose where to give. Every single dollar will help us to continue to move forward as a church that helps people experience and express God's glory. One more time, the website is creekside.me donate. Again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. There are times, right, when you, when you meet somebody and later you find out more information that completely alters uh, your understanding of, of that person. And, and what it does, I think, often is it, it completely changes your view of the first impression of that person. There was this, this man named Jake DeShazer, and um, Jake was a guy that I went to church with as a little kid, uh, but that, I don't even remember that. But later, I worked at the retirement home that he lived in, and him and his wife were there, and Jake was the most unassuming person. Like if you met him, you know, for me, like taking his orders, he didn't actually talk when he, when he took, uh, when you took his order, his wife would just tell him what he was having. And, uh, and that was it. And Jake would just sit there and kind of nod his head. He was short and little and cute kind of, uh, and very nice seeming guy, but you didn't really get to know him. And, uh, when you found out who he was, it totally changed your entire view of, of this, this man. Jake was a Doolittle bomber. He had been a, a captive in Japan for a long while. He'd given his life to Jesus. And after giving his life to Jesus, he had gone back to Japan and become uh, so famous uh, that, that he, he told this story to us in a chapel where I heard him speak, you know, during this time, uh, he said he went to speak and, and this stadium was, and he said this like just so unassumingly, he was said it like this. I'll try to be like Jake. He was like, I just tried to go into the stadium and the security guard at the front said, I'm sorry, sir. 
you can't go in there because it's sold out. Uh, and, and, and I looked at him and I said, well, I don't know if that's good because I, I'm supposed to be the one that they're listening to. Um, like that, like he filled up stadiums to share the gospel with people. And, and when, you, when you learned this about Jake, which I knew this, but when others would learn this about Jake, it completely changed like their first impression of him. This guy that came across as like, you know, not caring, not, uh, you know, like, like no care in the world, no passion maybe. It it altered how you view him. And, and here's the reality when it comes to Jesus. And, and what we're really going to see in this passage of scripture as we move through John today. And that is that, that the resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus should clarify for us the first impression. The resurrection clarifies the first impression. That's what this passage suggests to us. And whether you're a person who, you know, almost all of us has had some first impression of Jesus. And, and where we can really get it wrong is to leave that first impression just as a first impression and never look at it. Our experiences with Jesus, what we know about Jesus, what the Bible says about Jesus, through the lens of, of the biblical reality that he, that he was crucified, died, but then came back to life. And I think you'll see what I mean as we move through this passage of Scripture. And I do need to make a note. This passage of Scripture is, is, is a story that if you've grown up in church, you've heard it uh, defined, titled, The Cleansing of the Temple. And there's this debate that I actually don't think matters at all, but I'll bring it up. And that is the debate of whether or not Jesus cleansed the temple once or twice. Because in the book of John, which we're working our way through now, in the book of John, this story takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you remember my sermon last week, and I appreciate it if you do, then we saw Jesus' first public sign, his first moment in the public eye doing public ministry. And now we go to the next story, and the next story is the cleansing of the temple. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospels, the synoptic gospels as they're called, this story takes place at the end of Jesus' life, right before Jesus is killed and, and then subsequently comes back to life. And, and so people debate whether or not it happens once or twice. There's some evidence both ways. Uh, and I bring it up just because because it's out there and maybe you've heard it and you've wondered, well, does the Bible contradict itself? That would be the question. And the answer is, is frankly, no. I'm somebody who thinks that there is one uh, cleansing of the temple. And then you go, well, why did John put this at the beginning? Because John doesn't care about the chronology of Jesus' life. That is not the intent of John's writing this book called John. John tells us the intent. We've talked about this almost every week. John's intent is in John 20, 31. And he doesn't say it's to give you an orderly account of the things of Jesus. The book of Luke basically says that, right? But, but it's to prove to you, to show you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God so that you might believe in him and, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so John writes thematically rather than chronologically. And so perhaps there was two cleansings of the temple, but it doesn't really matter because John is not trying to tell you a linear story about this person named Jesus. He's trying to show you who Jesus is so that you might come to a belief in Jesus and therefore have eternal life. 
The New American Commentary says, John was a great inspired artist and theologian who organized his episodes from the life of Jesus in such a way as to bring people to faith in Jesus as the Son of God. I love that. An inspired artist and theologian. His goal here is to write uh, this document so that people might believe, not so that they might be able to fact check the order of the events of Jesus Life And so here's, here's this story that, again, now that doesn't make it unimportant that it's not in chronological order, but it does beg the question. I mean, what is he trying to teach by, if he did move this story to the beginning of his life, what is he trying to teach by doing that? I mean, that's the point. I mean, what is it that John is trying to teach about Jesus that will help us believe that he is the Messiah and the Son of God? And here's what verse 13, John 2 says, John 2, 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up. To Jerusalem. The Passover is extremely important in the book of John. Uh, the New American Commentary even says to miss the function of the Passover in this gospel is to miss one of the crucial stepping stones in the development of John's argument. That's a big idea, right? Like if you don't understand what John is saying about the Passover, then you're not really going to understand what John is trying to say at all. If you don't know, if you, if you, if you don't know the story of the Bible, then, then you may be unaware that the Passover is this Jewish holiday that started way, way back. Exodus 12 is where we read about it. God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved by the Egyptians, and God does a series of miracles and signs to set his people free but the Pharaoh of Egypt will not listen. And so God is going to do this final thing where he kills the firstborn son of, of everybody in the land, except for the people who will put the blood of the lamb above the, uh, above the door of their house. And, and God, even before he does this miracle, I find this interesting. It's always so interesting to me. Even before he does this miracle, he says, after I do this miracle, I want you to celebrate the Passover. And so he, he actually puts down the holiday before doing the event, which I think is incredible. And then it happens. And from that point on, for thousands of years, the Jewish people celebrate the Passover. Uh, the New American Commentary says that the Passover largely gives Jesus' death its meaning in the gospel of John. And we'll talk more about that as we move through. But it's important here to see that already Jesus has been called the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, an Old Testament idea. And now John is using this other Old Testament idea to show us the importance of Jesus. And the connection is that for Christians in large part, the last Passover has been celebrated because somebody new has come, Jesus has come, in order to save us from the certain death that we deserve. Jesus is the Passover lamb. The story moves from there and says, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging Money. So here's Jesus. He's going up to the temple for the celebration of the Passover. And the temple was the place of God's presence for people. It was the place of God's presence. And there was really four access levels to God in this temple. You had the court of Gentiles and then women and then men. And then you had priests, people who actually were in the public service, the, the full-time service of God. They had even better access to God. And so there was this movement to how close you could get to God based on who you were. And it's historical that this was happening, this marketplace that we read about here the selling of sheep and cattle and all that. It's taking place in the court of Gentiles. 
The situation is pretty simple. People traveled, Jews traveled from all over the known world to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they did not want to have to bring their animals on these long, long journeys. And so people said, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll just sell the animals when they get there. We'll make a profit. People don't have to travel with their animals. It's really simple. On top of that, you had to pay your temple tax in a certain um, currency. Uh, there was reasons for this, uh, but one of the main reasons is that there's no way you could pay with Roman currency with its pagan idolatry symbols on it, the emperors because of emperor worship. You couldn't just drop your Roman coinage in there. And so you had to change over your money. And so people there were making a profit changing over the money. And this is the situation that Jesus finds himself in. Now, Growing up, and I said this last week, it's funny what you remember about if you grew up in the church, if you're growing up in the church, it'll be funny for you in the future to, to think about what you remember about certain stories from the Bible and what, was, what you thought about when you thought about them as a kid. And uh, last week I talked about how so funny Jesus turned you know, water into wine. And all I remember about that story as a kid is that people said, well, you know, Jesus can't really support wine. That was like the whole memory for me of, of how we talked about that passage. And this one, what I really remember growing up is that when we talked about this passage in Sunday school or wherever I was hearing about it, I really remember talking about how it meant that churches should not sell things to make money. And that doesn't seem to be the point here. We'll come back to the point in a minute. And I would say that churches should be careful about that. Uh, but that isn't really the point. And we'll see the point in, in just a few minutes. But this is what happens in verses 15 and 16. Jesus sees this and it says, So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, it sounds really violent, and it's probably not quite as violent as it comes across on first glance. Uh, I've, I've actually heard this, this uh, passage many times uh, as an argument about whether, about the anger of Jesus and how Jesus had righteous anger. It doesn't say he was angry here. Uh, in fact, I don't know that he was angry here. He's just doing what he believes to be right. Uh, he makes this whip of cords and it, it reads like he's whipping all the people. Uh, and it's doubtful that he's just running around whipping people. Get out of here. He's probably made the, the whip in order to get the animals out of there, right? Like it's hard to move cattle unless you have a, a way of moving cattle. It's not like they're dogs. They say, go over there or whatever. My dog doesn't do that. But like, you know, it's not like you just command the, the cows to walk the other direction. And you'll notice even maybe... That, that when he looks at the guy selling the doves, the birds, there's no whipping involved. He just looks at the guy and says, get it out of here. Like, you need to leave here. So it's probably not as violent as it sounds, but it is an intense moment, right? Like, th there is something here that clearly bothers Jesus, enough for him to flip over tables and have all the change, you know, flying around everywhere. And the question is, what is it that bothers him? And he, he says it there, I mean, he alludes to it, you're turning my father's house into a market, my father's house into a market. And the next verse is really important because it, it gives us, I think, the information we need to see what really bothers Jesus in this passage. Verse 17, it says, his disciples remembered that it is written, 
Zeal for your house will consume me. What bothers Jesus here is not that the people are making money. It isn't that as some have, you know, hypothesized that these people are ripping others off. It's not that. It's that the worship of God is being intruded upon by the place that they've chosen to do these things. It isn't the money making, and we don't know that they're ripping people off. Maybe that's part of it. We don't know that. It's that the worship of God is being intruded on. The, The place where people were supposed to meet with God has become a marketplace. People are being distracted from their worship, from their interacting with the Holy One. This is probably a quote from, from Psalm 69.9. And there it's talking about how, how zealous David is for the place of God's presence. And I think that's a really important idea. Like I think about David and, and, uh, and just how passionate he was about the temple, about the place where he could meet God. And not just David, but, but the other psalmists as well. Like you know this maybe from a song, but better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. I mean, think about the sentiment there. It is better to spend one day in the presence of God, which for Jewish authors of the Psalms, right? Like that is at the temple. It's better to spend one day there than a thousand days elsewhere, then then spend a thousand years elsewhere, then I want one day in God's presence. And, And here, the disciples later, perhaps, and maybe probably after Jesus' resurrection, we'll come back to that in a minute, they realize that Jesus is, is passionate in this moment because he's so zealous for people to be in the presence of God and to be about the worship of God. For, for many you know, in this story, like, this was probably a first impression of Jesus. What a this crazy guy flipping over tables and driving people out. Now, this may have happened at the end of his life, but still, the crowds are going to see this. And, and it's important for us as we learn about how people are seeing Jesus, like, in those first moments, to just recognize how, how passionate he is about people not being distracted, not being pulled away from the presence and the worship of God. This is at the heart of Jesus, is is a a zeal, a zealousness for people being in the presence of God and worshiping God. And, And the story moves here and it says, Oh, wait, I want to read this quote to D.A. Carson says, Jesus cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and men. But it's that very concern that is attracting opposition. So we start to see, we're going to read this in a second, that even, even from the very beginning here of the story of John, like the opposition begins to rise against Jesus. John 8, 2, 18 through 22, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
So the Jews who respond here are probably authority figures, whether, whether temple authority figures or the Sadducees who had some, some power, you know, in the Roman government's eyes. Like, they're, they're authorities. And so this question isn't like some guy on the side of the road that's like, hey, who do you think you are? This is like the religious leaders coming over and saying, like, on what grounds are you doing this? And one of the reasons that we know this wasn't, you know, maybe it's terrible sounding as it seems, is that if Jesus would have at all looked like he was inciting a riot, then the Roman authorities would have been there in a split second. Because as you can read in the book of Acts, they they didn't take kindly to people starting riots or, you know, protests. Or that wasn't going to fly with the Roman officials. But the Jewish officials step in and they go, like, like, what right do you have to do this? And it's probable, based on the language, that they are demanding an answer. This isn't like there, this is more like a trial. Like, you're going to tell us why you think you can do this. And they really word it, this is fascinating to me, in a way that suggests that they want, they want a sign from Jesus. Now, we saw last week an incredible sign. Jesus is perfectly capable of doing some miraculous sign to prove himself here, to prove this authority. But Jesus is not going to be talked into signs ever in his ministry. Jesus does the signs that he wants to do, that he knows is right, that's within the will of his father. But they are looking at him like, you will give us a miracle to prove that you, that you have the authority to do this. And what's interesting here is that the disciples, when they look back at this through the lens of the resurrection, they actually see a sign in the cleansing itself. The reality is that the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament so well, they should have been able to see the cleansing of the temple in and of itself as an actual sign of his authority to do this very thing. This is the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to give us life, but they miss it at all. And so Jesus, I love his answer. I pondered this quite a bit this week. He gives them this answer that kind of keeps them at bay. It keeps them at bay and, you know, probably confuses them. And uh, it's a great answer because he doesn't tell them, I'm not giving you a sign. He offers them a sign that on the surface, there's no way they're going to call his bluff on. He's like, hey, just tear down the temple. And they're like, you know, I mean, they're not going to do that. Like, I mean, they know, he knows, they know, everybody knows that's not something they're going to do. But he doesn't say like, I won't give you a sign. He says, hey, tear down the temple and I will rebuild it. It keeps them at bay. But even more than that, it points to a bigger and more important truth that we'll learn about later when Jesus comes back from the dead. The sign that Jesus offers here is not the sign of tearing the actual temple down. It is uh, the tearing down of his body, the, the death of his body and the resurrection that would follow. Jesus offers a similar sign in Luke eleven twenty nine. It says, there's the crowds increase. Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. Ask for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. It's Jesus' way of saying my resurrection, my coming back from the dead. And here's this thing that you need to know about in the book of John. I think it's so important. Everything we'll do from this point forward as we, as we study through this book. There's this, this literary thing that John does where, where he, he presents this misunderstanding, these misunderstandings of Jesus' 
words. It's actually one of the key themes of the entire gospel of John, misunderstanding. And so Jesus will say these things that people take on the surface level and they go, well, he's wrong. He's, I mean, definitely wrong. He's, this isn't right. This is wrong. They'll misunderstand his words, but the one who has ears to hear, as Jesus so frequently says it, the people who come to believe in Jesus, they will see the deeper meaning in how true the words that he says are. And we have one of those here. I read it described as double level thinking. You have the physical, literal statement that Jesus makes that people will say, well, he's wrong. But when you look deeper at the spiritual meaning, you reveal It reveals something about who Jesus is and the transformation that he can make in our lives. And here we have it. I mean, the people, they look and they only hear this, you know, this very surface level idea. Like, this guy's going to rebuild our temple. You know, and they're probably thinking like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But the disciples who come to believe in Jesus, they see the deeper, more important spiritual meaning. And that is that Jesus is referring to his resurrection. The misunderstanding here is so like deeply embedded in people. It bothers people so much that Jesus says this, that it's actually one of the main points of his trial right before his death. He's there with the religious leaders. He's on trial and they're calling witnesses up to try to catch Jesus in a blasphemy because they want to kill him. And people come and they testify. And here's Mark 14, 58 and 59. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. It's interesting because they totally quote him wrong, right? Like that is, that is not an accurate quote. He doesn't say he's going to do it, first of all. He doesn't even say he's going to build another one. He says, I'll rebuild this one if you tear it down. And so their testimony is a mess. But you can see that even in his trial, this, there's this, this like just surface level view of what Jesus had said. And they completely failed to miss, failed to understand. They totally miss the deeper meaning. It comes up again. It's alluded to at the trial of Stephen in Acts 6.14. And this is like the first Christian martyr is about to be killed. And they're still talking about this idea of the temple being torn down. It's absolutely important for us as we study through the book of John to understand that when Jesus says something... There's, there's often two ways that we can understand it. We can understand it on just a physical, you know, worldly level and, and, and go like, I'm not sure he's right. Or we can look at the deeper meanings and begin to understand the, the depth of spiritual truth that Jesus has for us. And here we see, and it's probably in, even in the first idea where it says that, that they understood that zeal for the temple would consume him. It's after the resurrection and looking back that the disciples understand what he was really talking about here. The reality is we must view all of our impressions of Jesus through the resurrection. Like to look at the life of Jesus and not view it through the lens of the resurrection is is just to miss so much of the richness and the depth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, even while he walked around on the earth. D.A. Carson says the resurrection clears up the misunderstandings of Jesus 
as the true temple, the bread of heaven, the good shepherd. All of these claims that Jesus makes about himself, they're hard to understand, maybe impossible to understand if you don't view them backwards through the resurrection that will take place later. Jesus isn't just saying here like, hey, you can tear down that building. He's saying, someday I'm going to be killed and I'm going to come back to life on the third day. He's saying something deeper here and that he is calling himself his own body, the temple. What does that say? It shows us that Jesus is now the place of God's presence on earth. And Jesus is the person by whom we worship God through. He supersedes the temple as God's dwelling place amongst people. The place where God accepted people and met people because of bloody sacrifices has been supplanted by another temple and another sacrifice. And his name is Jesus. The resurrection clarifies for us our impressions of Jesus as we read through the story. And I think, you know, I've, I've talked about how I'm guilty of this. We, we Sometimes in Christian circles, we, we think about the resurrection, you know, once a year maybe. And, and the rest of the time, we, we forget it and we don't talk about it and we don't celebrate it. Most of our songs are about the power of God or the sacrifice of Jesus. And far too often, we, we don't even sing about the resurrection of Jesus in our worship. And the problem with that, there's lots of problems with that. But one of the problems with that, as we look at this passage today, is that the resurrection clarifies all of the things that we read about Jesus, even while he was still alive. We cannot just make the resurrection a singular event in the life of Jesus. We must make it the lens in which we view all of Jesus through. I mean, I even think about people, and, and maybe this is you, maybe this is you online, like people who, who just reject Jesus because his teachings are hard, or, or people who, who, who look at the life of Jesus and say, well, that's probably impossible. There's a natural explanation for, for the way that he turned water into wine, or for how he walked on water, or how he brought that guy back from the dead, or how he fed 5,000 men and women and children with just a, you know, a few loaves of bread and some fish. Like, there's natural explanations for those. But when you look at all that through the lens of the resurrection, it changes how you view those events. And you say, well, the most natural explanation for those is that those things happen supernaturally. Because look at how the life ends and he comes back to life. I mean, it's most natural to view those things as miraculous given the resurrection. It's most natural to figure out why I don't understand his words, even when I don't like them, but still hold to the fact that they are true when we see that he is a God who has died and come back to life for our sins. We must view the life, the teaching, the character, the nature of Jesus all through the lens of the resurrection. His disciples, my goodness, it appears that sometimes they're as confused as we are about the whole thing. I don't know what he is talking about. But after he comes back to life, they go, oh, I get what was happening there now. The story continues now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. There's this play on words in, in Greek that's something to this effect. The people trusted in his name 
but he did not entrust himself to them or this. Jesus did not believe their believing. He did not believe their believing. And I think that these people, and this is so true of people in the world today, they can look at all these, these really nice stories in the life of Jesus. It's really cool things that he does and like him. These great teachings. I mean, wow, we should love each other like we love ourselves, right? And how much better would the world be if, if, we, could, if we could be at peace even with our enemies? And they like Jesus. And they look at the, night, the, the healings and the miracles and say, wow, he cared about people. I mean, he, he, he healed those with leprosy when nobody else wanted to be around them. And, and the, you know, the woman bleeding, like she, she was... She was an outcast and Jesus interacted with her and and he can go down the line over and over and and people go I really like that guy but I'm not going to give my life to him and I think the truth is for all of us that unless we view these stories through the lens of the resurrection that no matter what our impression of is of Jesus we too will be people who who believe like the ones described here we believe he's a great guy. We believe he's a great teacher. We believe he's a great healer. We believe he's, you know, a, a model for how we should live our lives. But unless we view Jesus through the resurrection, then we are not going to view him as the Messiah, the Son of God, who, who we should believe in for life and then serve with all of our life. Uh, like the resurrection turns Jesus, you know, from just a great guy that was a great example that did nice things for people into the one that we give ourselves to in order that we may have life, have it to the fullest, have it eternally, and, and, and then, you know, serve him with everything that we have. I think we just sometimes are guilty, even if those of us who are Christians, we are guilty of almost minimizing Jesus because I think we take his life and we separate it from the resurrection. We forget about it all of the year. But as John works his way through the life of Jesus, and you'll see this, all of it, all of it is, is written through the lens, the backwards lens of the resurrection. Like everything he writes is viewed through the lens of the resurrection because for him, the resurrection clarifies every impression that people might have of Jesus. If you are viewing Jesus apart from the resurrection, then you are not viewing Jesus the way that you should view Jesus. And verse 25 stands as a warning to all of us. Jesus knows what is in each of us. And therefore, we need to look inside of ourselves and say, am I a person who has truly committed my life to Jesus? Because I believe that he died and came back to life for my sins. I mentioned that the Passover in the book of John is key to understanding why Jesus' death matters, but... Uh, I think Passover is also key to defining, you know, the decision that we have to make about Jesus. Like for the people in Egypt, you know, that night when God did that miracle, like they had to make a decision to, to make that sacrifice and to be obedient to God and put that blood above their doorway. And, and as John writes this story for us, it's as if he calls us, to make a same Passover-like decision. 
It's not that we would make a sacrifice, it's that we would embrace the sacrifice of Jesus, that we would embrace the sacrifice of Jesus and not put blood above our doorway, but put blood above our hearts as we believe in him as the Messiah, the Son of God. But for John, and I think all of the biblical authors, but maybe John the most because he writes thematically, it's all only going to happen when you believe that Jesus not only died, but he came back to life. And so I would encourage all of us to remember that the resurrection should clarify every impression that we have of Jesus. Let me pray that that will be true. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the offer of salvation that you have given us. I thank you, Lord, that your stories, all of these great stories that I've loved from the time that I was a kid, God, all of these did not happen, you know, in a vacuum. They happened, God, as part of your life here on earth that was ultimately leading to your death for our sins and your resurrection that conquered death for all who would believe in your name. And I pray, Jesus, for every person that's, that's here with us now, that's watching online, that has not made that Passover decision, they have not given you their life, I pray that you would get a hold of their hearts now, God, and, and they would believe, Jesus, they would truly believe because you know what's in them. Not, that, not just that you are a great man that did great things, but that you are the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God who died and came back to life. And they would embrace you as their Savior because they believe in the resurrection. And for those of us who are Christians, I pray that we would never separate, God, the stories of your life here on earth, the miracles, the teachings from, you know, the reason that we celebrate Easter the thing that separates us from, from everybody else, and that is that we believe that you came back to life. Everybody, Jesus, believes that you died, but those of us who believe that you lived again, that you live again, are the ones who commit ourselves to you. And so let us never, let us never forget that. Let us celebrate your resurrection, God, in our hearts and minds constantly and consistently. And let us view all of your life through that lens. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.